You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The tour is now on sale. My spring tour in 2018 of Like I Mean It, which was the show I took to the Edinburgh Festival this year, 2017, and which was one of the 20 best-reviewed shows of that festival, which I'm very excited about. And I should already qualify that by saying best-reviewed comedy shows. <laughs> I don't know how it fared against the theatrical and ballet and uh, Swedish clowning giants there. But uh, the show itself, uh, Like I Mean It, is coming to a town near you if you live in the United Kingdom and Ireland. Um, if you don't live in those places if you're in Melbourne with a bit of luck it's coming to you uh, next year as well and if you live anywhere else make me an offer but go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour to find out where you can come and see in the UK and Ireland uh, my lovely show I can't wait I can't wait I'm so excited best whatever again now on with the show this is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. So my name's Stuart Goldsmith. Welcome to the show. Now, it's been pointed out to me that I very rarely, at the beginning of this show, tell you what the show is about, assuming that you've all been on board since day one. Now, if you're new uh, to this podcast, basically I'm going to talk to one comedian, in this case, Mr. Reginald D. Hunter, one of the most prolific comedians I've spoken to, certainly someone who has been performing year after year after year for way before since I became a comic myself. Uh, and I'm going to be talking to Reg about his creative process and these days as well in the, the over the life of my podcast it's become fractionally less about how do you write your jokes and more about how are you how do you cope how do you cope with being you so this i think if this is your first foray into the podcast it's as good a starting point as any there's some pretty heavy stuff coming up and i'm gonna just alert you to uh, a couple of things I, I i don't think you okay so i did have we spoken on this show before about trigger warnings i think what a trigger warning is when the phrase is used correctly is when you announce that something incongruously upsetting is going to happen and i think a podcast where people talk about their lives almost nothing is incongruous um so whilst i think a trigger warning is sensible if you're an episode of sesame street and you're going to cover sexual assault um which is you know reasonable i don't say that lightly um but uh that's that's an appropriate place for a trigger warning. I suppose this is a conversation about a man's life and uh, and he's a controversial man. So I think I'd just like you to be prepared in advance for some of the stuff we're going to talk about. I say heavy. I don't want to worry anybody. Um, we get pretty deep pretty quickly. And uh, Reg is admirably candid about the uh, about what he's been going through 
particularly for the last three years and the reasons behind it. And I thank Reg for opening up so much. I also press him a little later in the interview on some of the things he's said in the past. Now, this isn't Frost Nixon and I never want to ambush anybody or, or kind of have pretensions towards uh, ambushing comics and sort of confronting them. At the same time, I do think part of what makes this podcast interesting and exciting for me and hopefully for you is that I do like to, or I feel some not a responsibility that's the sort of thing a wanker would say but I do yeah well I like I like to challenge people on their preconceptions of themselves and I think later on in this show towards the end uh, we talk about some of those things that you may remember if you're a com completist uh, Michelle Acourt fabulous New Zealand comic and I talked about when we saw Reg live in New Zealand several years ago we talk about this show Reg and I and uh, also his uh, minder <laughs> I don't know quite what to call Cash he has many jobs um uh, Cash weighs in on some of those uh, subjects as well. So uh, let's see what you make of this. I'm very proud of this and I'm very grateful to Reg for participating. I think you're going to enjoy it. This is Reginald D. Hunter. This is a particular set of circumstances, Reg, because uh, it's the last day of the Edinburgh Festival and it's mm. an insane time to do a podcast with someone. And by the time we arranged and rearranged the dates, I should have thought, let's do this at another time. I disagree. Okay. I think this is the best time for you to do it because uh, it's like, I did like, what, seven weeks of touring um, between uh, what uh, April and May. And then... We had the Edinburgh Festival, which is ending today, and tonight I'll be doing the seventh gig in three days, and it's like, yeah, I don't have a whole lot of pretension to me at this point. I'm, I'm, if I wanted to say something fake, it's going to come out all fucked up and honest. So, <laughs> so yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, so you lucked out. Okay, well, thank you. How is it performing on stage when you're in a wheelchair? Do you find it limiting, or does it free up the words? I or tell you what, man... Um, Real talk, I really think uh, the broken leg has been like a, a blessing from the universe in many different ways. Um, in a non-performance sense, it's it sort of made you sort of, while you in life, kind of be a spectator at the same time. People around you, talking around you. And it's like people you even know, you get to see them for real. Because in some ways you become not quite a person. You know, everybody still like you and dig you and everything, but, you know, you see people around you talking about you like you're not there, like, well, what are we going to do about this? Well, how are we going to get him in the thing? And just, you know, what? But, you know, he don't like that. And, you know, you're just sitting right there, you know, and it's just... And so, performance-wise, though, it's been a real blessing. First of all, when I came back, um, my first gig after uh, breaking my leg, I think the combination of the leg and having to scramble around with it and maybe even the opiates. It just made you slow down and take your time. And it, and I had forgotten one of my rules that when I first started in comedy, well, John Godillo helped me learn this because John Godillo is the person who really helped me the most hands-on. He taught me to slow down and enjoy the words that you wrote. <laughs> you wrote these. And you, you, tell the jokes that you enjoy saying and enjoy them. And, and not just the punchlines either, the, 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 the premises, the setup. Enjoy the, the articles and your sentences. Just, you know, the these and the those and the they's and all, just all of that. Just, and so, yeah, the wheelchairs made me slow down. 
And, um, and I, I, I half jokingly often say that I am a comedian, but I actually aspire to rank in tour class. And, um, sitting in the wheelchair, it, 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 it feels like a glimpse of what being a raconteur might be like. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel I'm a good five to eight years away from achieving raconteur class if I keep working at this pace. <laughs> <laughs> and what, and what is that? Because I, I think there's an element of your show, the story about Harper Lee. Mm. That's, would you say that kind of fits into raconteur class? I guess it would. I, I would, I thought about, I, I hadn't put that together yet, but yeah, I, um, it's, a. Uh, Harper Lee is partly, I guess, raconteur, but it's also, I just reached a stage in my career now where it's just, I'm tired of not saying shit because I ain't found a punchline for it yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because a lot of stuff I write is pretty good. It's just, it's, it's just no punchline to it. And just, and oftentimes I found that you, you've done all the writing you can off stage. Sometimes the last bit you need, you can only find on stage. So. I'm hoping, I've been hoping that there's going to be a night where I throw in this ad lib that's just going to be hilarious and you go, that's the punchline. Yeah, gotcha. For the Harper Lee bit, which yeah. at the moment you are prefacing by saying uh, this bit isn't funny. It isn't this funny. This bit may not be funny and you just tell a story to talk about an idea. Yeah, and it's just, um, it's just, it was just, it was just such a good idea and it's like, and I see why some comedians quit and they go on to write books or plays and stuff like that. It's just, well, I've been a stand-up since, what, 97? So I'm, you know, 98. So 19 years, 19 years of being a stand-up, I get the feeling sometimes, it's just, I get tired of trying to get my all my best ideas and I can only say them to people if I can make them stupid. <laughs> just, it's like, you know, it's just, but, yeah, it's... It's also wanting to change. I want to change. I, I don't want to say I want to change the form, but it's like when I first started loving stand up was when I was a kid and I would be listening and watching the Richard, watching Richard Pryor. And there'd be sometimes he'd be doing a joke and I would really be into it. And then he would stop and I'd go, no, more. No, no. And years later in his um, box set that he released, there was an interview with him and a, a journalist or a chronicler, much like yourself, <laughs> asked him, um, you know, what bugs him about his own work. And he said, he says, when I lose my nerve and I pull out too soon, I, I, I'm, I'm not getting enough quick laughs and I don't hang in there and I don't stay with the subject. That's what makes me mad with myself. And I was like, yes, yes, that's what made me mad with you too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't not now ask you what makes you mad with you. Is that, is that the same thing? Is that the first thing you come to? Because that's a great question. What bugs you about yourself? Myself or my work or just myself in general? Let's do yourself in general first and then we'll do your work. Oh, man, come on. I don't see. You offered. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, the things that make me mad about myself is just too myriad to name and just... Um, and since I, I ain't been out of bed long and I just met you, I'm not comfortable exposing myself that much yet. Give me about 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with work um, What makes you mad about my work? I do this. There's a certain sound that my jokes have. I think of myself as a tone comedian. A lot of my punchlines really depend on tone. And if you don't say, if you don't, if, if you don't use the right tone, then you're just saying something really shitty. 
<laughs> and I get mad. I get frustrated with myself. Like, I'll write a joke sometimes, and I'll look at the punchline, and I'll go, yeah, but that's exactly what I would say. That is the kind of thing I would think. Okay. And sometimes when I'm doing it, when I'm performing for an audience, it's like, and they're laughing, and it's like, you really don't see where this is going. You don't really see, this This is not obvious to you. <sighs> no wonder I can't grow. <laughs> what an incredible what an incredible uh, articulation of that viewpoint of your own work that I've never had this is episode 220 something and um, I've never had another comic say that before that's fascinating to hear that you record, like it's almost like you're thinking how can you not how can you not be anticipating where this is going yeah. because you know your stuff so well and they know your stuff well they know you have a following you have a big audience you're playing a huge room up here and I've experienced that watching um, Tom Binns uh, do um, uh, Ivan Brackenbridge. You know, I mean, it's a fantastic act. I've had Tom on the show. We've talked about it. But I, I as a comic, am watching there going, you know, the song is going to turn out to be about, the, it's going to complete the sentence. And he's ripping gigs. I've, you know, see him at yeah. tear the roof off that tent. And you're thinking, how are you guys not getting this? Now, I suppose... That that's a kind of a like that's a kind of route one example of it because that the nature of those types of punchlines of that kind of character are very set up punch. You're far more complex, I think, in your delivery and and so I just want to talk about that. The, like you feel they should be able to see the tone coming. It's not that they should see the tone coming. It's just they should see the idea coming. I think or the punch or whatever. It's like because I, I I think my stuff is is is, is laden with. With with minor callbacks, I mean just I mean the clues and the premise, the clues and the setup. I mean that's what that's, that's the point of a premise and a setup is you're giving the audience the information they need in order to laugh at the thing. And it's like and even like giving you the thing you still don't know. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> uh, and what's this other thing I get mad with? Sometimes I get mad. I get mad with um not mad, but I just get to. Man, it's not harsh enough. I think it's um, lightly disgusted. I get lightly disgusted with myself. But, um, I think there's too much exposition in my work sometimes. And sometimes I just think, well, just get to the fucking joke. Because there's the joke that needs to be said, and there's all the other stuff in it that you just simply like saying. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and what the, the, the audience needs. <laughs> and the exposition is fine when you're doing like an Edinburgh show or a tour show. Um, the, the more literate audiences in, in Britain, they they can like hmm, I, great forming of an idea, just uh, interesting contrast. There are moments, and this is one of the things I enjoy is when I'm doing the exposition right. You can hear members of the audience at the same time go hmm, like a collective hmm. You hear it, okay? Like oh, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> okay, okay. So those those two ideas seem to me to have a, a conflict with each other. That, like you were saying, the stuff that Gordillo had said, that John had said about um, about slowing down and enjoying the 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 words, every word. And at the same time, you're frustrated with yourself sometimes that you are what kind of enjoying the language too much. I'm just being verbose. I come from verbose people. My father is verbose. He loves. It, it's essentially. Um, it comes from believing that it comes from the belief that 
you really, really want to be understood. And you just, and you try over hard to make sure the person understands. And it's like, you, have to, you just have to go relax, Rich. They got it. <laughs> they understand the setup. Just, and, um, but also, too, I think I've fallen into a trap over here in that so many people comment on the tonal quality of my voice. And it's, you know, now I don't hear people say all kind of sideways comp- compliments like, oh, I could just listen to him read, compl- um, read the phone book. He doesn't have to do jokes or, oh, it's just, uh, I don't really care about the jokes. I just love hearing him talk. And it's like, and, and that's another thing that can be tough for me is there's a, when I'm a certain kind of tired, there's a tonal quality that dips and gets to a certain level and it genuinely, genuinely lulls people to like just blah and they, they enjoy blah it's just that none of the jokes go in yes and, it's yes. Just, and so they, I become more of a lecturer <laughs> <laughs> than a comedian okay and that's just, that's, just, that's just so that's one of the reasons why I'm conscious about when I'm speaking on stage to change speeds you know just high low you know zigzag you know somber Silly, just I try to change speed so I don't lull them into a state of blah. Yeah, okay, because your because your rhythm and just the sound of your voice mm. is just the danger is it's yeah. so horrific for them. Yeah, and just you know it's just you know it's just, and you got to tell when I'm doing it because there's there's always somebody in the audience that just has a drunk people can't handle it. <laughs> drunk people pass the fuck out when I do that, and they just. And then, you know, they, they get up and they be mad. That thing's very funny. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, 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 and when I tell you, when I went to New York, I did 17 gigs in 10 days there. And, you know, the, the story, what they talk about, the New York Minute. Yeah. It's like, that was the first time I saw I didn't need all the words. It was like I was on stage and I was editing like a motherfucker while I was on stage. I was like, I was telling a joke while I was thinking about my next joke. And while I was saying the joke, I was saying, when I just, a line before I was, I was just about to speak, something in my head would go, don't need it. Just get to the next line. Don't need it. And it was like, oh, Jesus, how come I didn't realize that in England? <laughs> and are you able to replicate that in the UK? Or are you, are you interested in doing that? Is it just like a refreshing change? or is it I, only, you want only, to I, I only find that gear necessary if I'm doing television stand-up or you got the, or, or you're doing a slot with like somewhere between 7 and uh, 12 minutes. Then, you know, you got to punch, you got to punch, you got to punch. And I don't, I don't believe I would be able to do that if I hadn't had the New York experience. Because, you know, in New York, I'd be on stage and I had like 10 minutes. And... I'm like at minute nine. And you see the other comics on the side of the stage and they're looking at it and they're enjoying it. And they're really into it. But then you get around minute 10 and the same comic that's got the eyes open and just looking at you, he's like, your time's up. <laughs> <laughs> and if you go like to minute 11, they are mad as fuck with you. They get really shitty with you about it. So it was like, yeah, it was, it was good training. It was just, so it gave me that gear to be able to like, okay, punch this up. And lose this line or two. And I guess this is one of the reasons why I love working in Britain because British audiences do reward subtlety. I like subtlety. I like subjectivity. I like I like the other noises that you get from stand up over here. It's like the deal is you're just supposed to make them make that <laughs> sound. And I do love that sound. It's the sound of um what's that sound? Of um of you force somebody to laugh. It's it, it, it's there's something 
almost violent about it when you make somebody laugh. Especially somebody who don't want to laugh. Or somebody who doesn't who thinks you're a bit smutty and you make them laugh. It's it's almost some it almost feels to me it feels like a, a modest form of comedy sexual assault. But you look for other sounds too. And the other sounds I look for is just like that gasp when you say something, people go, Ooh Like um there's a story I do in this show when I'm talking about this woman, this old woman who caught her husband in a compromising position. And there's a moment every night when I say, um, when, I, when her character, she says, my husband walks out past me. And as he walks past me without looking at me, he says, I'll send for my things. And that effectively was the end of 45 years of marriage. And the healing women just gasp a little. Like just, ooh. Bastard. <laughs> I love moments like that. So this is Reg. I won't go into too much detail on this. It's an expansive kind of a show, and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff and a lot more stuff to come. So straight back to it very soon. I mentioned the tour at the beginning of this show. If you are interested in my stand-up comedy, if you have been to comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop and downloaded my albums in the past, thank you to those of you who've bought them on uh, Bandcamp or listened on Spotify or iTunes or anywhere else you get your musical... <laughs> it is absolutely not musical comedy. I try to say musical comedy and didn't manage it um, but if you've listened to my act and you've enjoyed it in the past I'm very pleased to tell you the show that is going on tour is absolutely my best ever show and I really really want you to see it so do come and see it comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour it's got a list of all the dates almost all of them are um, uh, are on sale now there's one or two that aren't simply because they're so far away in the future we're nothing if not organised over here at ComCom Towers and uh, also we're hoping to put some London dates in as well so there's none on there at the moment but do check back soon as you will know, if you have been listening to the recent shows, October is your last chance to get hold of the Thanks Man t-shirts designed by the brilliant American illustrator Polly Becker. So go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash merch to get hold of them. That's only, uh, they're only available during October. A load of people have jumped on and uh, booked them in the last few days. Booked them. We're booking t-shirts now. Um, so thank you to those of you who are doing that. I'm very excited. I'm going to get all of those, well, collate them all together. I feel like after the, after the, the June pre-sale. I'm a bit more on. I'm a bit more together as to how to get all this done in uh, in terms of uh, logistics. But uh, we're going to chuck out a load more, and then that will be your final chance to get one. Unless you're going to come and see me on tour and take a chance on me having your correct size in a little suitcase of merch that I knock out out of the back of my car. So that's that. Go to communitymedia.com forward slash merch for the t-shirts forward slash tour for all the tour information on like I mean it and. Uh, Oh man, I can't wait. I know I said this at the beginning, but I can't wait. I'm so excited about going on tour and I'm really pleased to finally make that uh, apparent and a thing that you can get involved with. Um, shall we do the cavalry again? Some of you were so kind in the last couple of years of like putting up uh, posters locally. It's impossible to tell how well it worked. And whilst I was very, very uh, honoured uh, that so many of you wanted to help out like that, I do want to make the most of your time. So maybe let's think of some other things. <laughs> the cavalry of if you remember was um in previous tours uh, people have emailed me and said yeah i'll put some posters up in my local 
place of work or whatever. And that was very kind of them. Um, but I don't want to exploit you. If anyone's got any other sweet ideas on uh, how you yourself can be leveraged <laughs> to bring 10 mates to the show, then uh, please do get in touch either on the Facebook group or at info at comedianscomedian.com. That's enough fluff. I'm going to have a bit of a postamble with you after this episode, but I think it's probably time that we get back to the genuinely brilliant and, as I said before, admirably candid Reginald B. Hunter. I would say I only really started being funny again about maybe five, six months ago, and I had not truly been funny for about three, maybe four years. Um, I had jokes, but I was all technique. I was I was nothing between the jokes. I was just just writing and technique, and but being funny is that extra thing. It's, it, being funny, you have to have command to be funny. You have to you have to be, you have to have the command to go. Well, I'm gonna do this. Okay. Or I'm gonna say it like this. When you're funny, you handle you handle hecklers better. <laughs> when you're not funny, when you're not funny, and you know you're up there just doing technique and jokes. You 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 know you shamming, you know you're getting away with something. You know you you're imitating a comedian and you're scared. You are you're just you're hoping people don't notice. You're trying you you're using the jokes and the technique of subterfuge. And just so I went about two three years of just being sub subterfuge. Do you know why that was? Yeah, I know. Of course I know. I live with it. I ate with it. Of course I know. Why was it? <laughs> I had real bad gas. How about that? Okay. Let's leave it at that. I had bad gas. Stop looking at me like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, f- I feel your fucking look, okay? I feel I, it. I'm interested. Obviously, you know why I'm interested. <laughs> I mean, you know, you could tell me any version of it you want. I'm interested in how it affects your creativity. Um, to go through a period like that, I, I think all comics listening to this will have experienced some moment of going, I'm faking this. I'm forging it. I'm relying on the technique. I don't mean this. Okay, I tell you, if it's to help other comedians, because Reg care about other comedians. <laughs> um... I had gone through a period, I was going through a period where I was simultaneously, I was going through a breakup. I lost my best friend and, and then I lost my girlfriend and I was probably enjoying drugs a little too much. And my mother who had died like seven or eight years earlier, I had promised myself when she died that I wasn't going to fucking cry because that's what she wanted. My mother was, my mother had this real thing about, my mother used to hold death over my head a lot. From the time I was five, she would say things like, you better do all you can, because when I'm gone, just, the, the, wor- the world hates a motherless child. And it's just every time I, it's just like once a week, it's just at some point, just, ooh, I'm going to die one day, and you're going you're gonna to be left out to dry, and the Lord going to take me home, and just, and she had a death fetish, not fetish, but she had a death thing, because both her parents were dead by the time she was 10, and... And I remember as a kid, I was always afraid that she was going to die and just I'd go by her room just to make sure that the Lord hadn't come by and the rapture hadn't occurred and all of that. And I remember <laughs> I felt so shitty about this for years. When I was 26, she was following me, following me around the house, fucking with me about something. 
And she follows me into my room and she said, you just don't understand. But one day the law going to take me home and you're going to see, you're going to see what it's like to not have a mother. And I looked at her and I said, you know what, mama? When you die, I hope death is everything you've been dreaming it's going to be. In fact, I suspect that the only thing that you would dislike about the experience is that you can only do it once. And she said, you just don't understand. So when she died, I mean, me and her had a contentious relationship. So when she died, I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And of course, there's psychological and emotional ramifications for, for that. And it's gonna and it's gonna come out eventually in the end. So just all at once. And it seemed like the trigger thing that happened was me and my best friend falling out. And that just a, a trigger of and so all of a sudden, after, after all these years of being in stand up, all of a sudden I was afraid to go on stage and I couldn't let anybody know. <laughs> I was afraid I was afraid of what I was really gonna say. I was gonna, I was afraid that I was gonna just be in the middle of a joke. And just uh, going, fuck everybody, fuck everybody, fuck you, fuck you. I was, I was just, <laughs> I was scared I was going to do that. So I was tight. And, and quite frankly, and I knew even at the time that I needed one of two things. I needed psychiatric help or I needed to go and be on somebody's farm for eight months and not do nothing. But I didn't have time for either. My career was, <laughs> and, and the people who were, who the people who rely on me, like, you know, the people who connected to me, who, whose fortunes are tied in with my own. You know, if I get a little bit erratic, <laughs> you know, it makes them crazy. You know, anytime, if, if, if me and you have a connection and one of us jerks suddenly, the other person feels it. So I was, I was like, I don't want nobody to worry too much and just, yeah, yeah. And so, um, and also when you're in that state of mind, you don't find very much funny. And it's just, I didn't find myself funny. I didn't like myself. And the world started looking dingy. And, and I didn't have anybody to really talk to about it. That I, I didn't have anybody I could talk to about it who could advise me on shared experience. Everybody else would just be like, oh, you'll be all right. <laughs> oh, get, get a hold of yourself. Oh, just, and it's just, so, yeah, I just had to go through that. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm on a, the opposite side of it now. And the, the weird thing is like my mom's dead right <laughs> I love the fuck out of her now she's so funny <laughs> I, mean, I wish we'd had a better relationship I wish I had been more of, more of an adult to know how to deal with that but it's just and and also as well a lot of young comics that they don't have no edge or no sharpness to them or they don't have any impact it's cause they ain't heard enough yet they ain't been through just you need to get punched in the face by life once or twice and then have to get up and be funny. It's like um, what they say about the blues. It's not enough to know what the notes are. You have to understand why they need to be played. <laughs> and just, and it, I think that's what enables you to better get that gasp out of people or that, ooh, and it's like, and so, yeah. And, and I have to say for the first 13, 14 years of my career, it had been a breeze. I had, I had not had a true challenge to my confidence. I mean, um, I would say from, from my first gig on, every, everyone around me was telling me with amazed eyes how good I was. And it was like, I had never, I hadn't been up against nothing, nothing, nothing that beat me or compromised me. And that's the thing that Pryor said too. 
is when he came back after that, that, that very first gig after getting burnt up. Because that's the thing. Comedians, we have a veneer of protection when you don't know what our issues are unless we tell you. And that's, that's a bit of our, invul- we're a bit invulnerable then. But when the audience knows about your shit, and that's why it was classic when Pryor went back on stage for the first time and he looked at the audience and he just went, well, shit. And the audience just went, yeah, we know, baby. Yeah, we know. God damn. Yeah. And I, and I felt exposed and compromised, um, even though my audience and fans didn't really. But amongst the people in my life, I was I felt like I was. Uh, I just I had at that point been in been in Britain about what, 14, 15 years. And it's a long time for somebody like me from the deep south to go without sun every day or optimism <laughs> or somebody who could t- talk to you about your, your feelings without going, oh, stiff up a lip. Oh, don't be a baby. And it's just, I needed to cry. And I still hadn't done it yet. Probably because I still think crying is kind of faggy. Certainly my mama would say so. My mama would be like, you big old faggot. She crying because I'm dead. I told you I was going to die, nigga. That's just how she talked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, so was there a particular point at which you felt I'm on the other side of this? What was it that happened? If you didn't get eight months on a farm, did you get psychiatric help? Did you get farm time? What was it that turned around? When we find ourselves in those points of going, what is it that's going to change now? And it came to a head. Years ago, they used to do this at the, Australia, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and it was very progressive. They used to have a 24-hour on-call psychiatrist for the comedians. No! Oh, mate. They used to. What went wrong? <laughs> they would use that facility. Money, I reckon. I just, yeah. If money get tight, that, that'd be the first kind of thing to go. Of course. <laughs> But I, I, I participated in some of that the last last year I was there. But last year they were doing that program. And I basically sat with the man and I was like, how much does it cost? And he said, you know, he says, it's, it's free. He said, no, I'm not charged like 100, 100 pounds an hour. And I said, how many sessions does man usually need? And he said, well, I normally recommend between six and nine. And I said, well, I don't really need an hour. And he said, why do you say that? I said, well, I already worked out what's wrong with me. I just need to hear it out loud, saying it to another person. <laughs> and, I t- and I had. I told him everything I knew was fucked up with me. And he was like, he goes, you're definitely one of the most intriguing people I've ever met. I think we should meet more often. I'm like, no, I'm good. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know they don't have the answers. What they can do is help facilitate you find your own answers. But I'd already done that work. I just need someone, I just need someone else to proofread what I... <laughs> Um, that helped and oh I also, another thing that was wrong with me I stopped having sex um, <laughs> that's a whole bit McGill to get into when I first started um, achieving notoriety in stand up like like when the, when, when the money and the notoriety started coming in I noticed that there was a predatory shift between me chasing some women and some women chasing me now and it just seemed like it was a lot more easier to get in trouble. It's like my sister told me. She said, be careful in Britain. She says, because sexual misdeeds can start your career in America. In England, it can, it can end them. <laughs> and so it's like, I knew in my heart I was a hoe. <laughs> and, 
And I knew that I valued my career, and my career also is what helps take care of my family and my closest friends. So the best way to ensure that I didn't fuck my career with my penis was that I just would just not mess with women at all. And Picasso said that a lot of creative energy comes from sexual energy. And a lot of my early careers is when I was being, I was being a substantial hoe. I mean, the jokes were flowing. I mean, it just, it just, and, and I think part of the boost that a man gets, I mean, I, certain probably women too, but certainly for, 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 for me anyway, the boost that I got, it wasn't so much about physical gratification. It, it, it made your ego come. It made you feel like this unhavable angel, let me have her. So that must mean that I'm worth having. <laughs> Yeah, and so that I would blow off of that for a week or two, and I had that consistently. But around 2010, that dried up too. But I was I was very analytical about it. I was like, well, sexual fuel is a great fuel, but there are substitutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure a psychologist or a psychiatrist would tell us that if you get addicted to that, I'm not using the word addiction, but if. If the idea of, like, like you said, making your ego come, like that has got to be uh, a basis for a lot of people, a lot of artists, a lot of comedians, people in the public eye, people who do end up getting chased by, as you say, women or men or whoever. Um, that idea can you can see you can see we can see that happen to other comics. We can see people falling down that rabbit hole. And well, well, let me stop you right there because making your ego come. I think you can have a connotation like that's a bad thing. But when you but, but when 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 the audience laughs at a joke that you just wrote and they laugh good, your ego comes in too. Absolutely. And it's just you and you have to find healthy ways to make your ego come without hurting other people. I think that's what I was. I hope that's where I was going. I couldn't see it. <laughs> that, uh, that if you connect your own feelings of self-worth to whether or not you can make your ego come or make an unhavable age or have an unhavable age if, that, if you connect that to whether you feel worth something as a person then that's that's a fast track to unhappiness yeah so um, and so, so I came out of that I came out of that I guess um, it was just stone my stone I call it my boss of clarity Sometimes it sounds like my mama. Sometimes it just sounds like some some ethereal nigga talking to me. But this is voice in my head. Sometimes and just and it just said, "You got great friends. You got people to respect you, like your work, revere you. Even a lot of women want to know you. How much more self worth do you need, nigga? Well, what other proof is there on this earth that you are worth something? What 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 what? Is it more money? Certainly not more ass." What is it? What is it? And just maybe the people that are telling you that you are great, maybe they're not quite right, but maybe there's something there. Why don't you stop your belly aching some? And I think there's just, I guess this is where the old British pull yourself a bite bootstraps mentality comes in. There comes a point you realize, well, this is what there is. Make something of it or move on. But either way, stop your fucking whining. Because then. Ah, I know this is probably a, a jumble of stuff I'm telling you, but I, I thought we were just going to talk about jokes. <laughs> we are talking about jokes. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, my, my, my 2015 tour, that was the hardest. For the first time in my career, I was scared to go on stage. And consistently... I was coming off early. You know, the audience would be like, 
I was enjoying the show. It was okay. He just left. <laughs> and it was like, and also when you're being, when you're being, when you're being labeled with the moniker of being cool or strong or the coolest man in comedy, you get scared of showing any vulnerability. And you get locked into your own sort of, you know, it was like, and my mama put in me as well. My mama hated weak men. She hated it. And that was one of the things that drove me. My, I spent the balance of my life trying to prove to people because my mama told me that I was weak when I was a kid. I spent the balance of my career trying to prove to people that I was not weak and accidentally gave myself a comedy career in the process. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, she's to be credited for that. <laughs> but also, being afraid of being weak also makes you afraid to ask for help sometimes. Or, or even admitting that you that you are fallible or that you you're struggling, you need help, and and so what happened was I got so afraid, and so I just stopped going anywhere unless I had to perform somewhere. I just stayed home and I stayed home. I was avoiding the sex, I was avoiding the trouble. I was I was just I was feeling I was in I was in a hole and I didn't like myself. I just stayed home. And then that has another effect on your comedy because nothing's coming in to inform your work. You're not having the experiences. And when you're having sex or you're having, when you're dating, at least you're having that, that, that energy and that friction and it goes into your writing. You know, like, you know, I was talking to this woman the other day and she said, you know, I didn't have that anymore. Or I was with my woman the other day and she did, you didn't have that anymore. And I wasn't going out to parties. I wasn't going to museums. I wasn't going, I wasn't going anywhere anymore. And it was like, I didn't have nothing to talk about other than what was innately coming out of here. So, you know, some of it was kind of loopy, you know, just, you know, just, you know, just. <laughs> I'm sitting at home watching TV and I'm looking at the news. And I'm looking at inhumanity and I'm looking at corruption and crime and just people being mean to each other. And I'm starting to wonder, why the fuck am I trying to recycle paper? And, you know, it's kind of it works OK, but it's something is inorganic about it. Because it doesn't have the inclusion of life in it. Gotcha. It's just you sitting there. It's, it's like going into a dead sprint coming out of a dead stop. Whereas when you, if you're just jogging and then you gradually pick up pace and then you add this and that. that and I just... Did and, you feel that about the material on the 2015 tour? Oh, yeah. The, the yeah. performance the and... Ma- the material was stayed. It didn't have any life to it. And also as well, I got to a point that I was, I was scared all the time. I didn't want any trouble. I had gotten I had gotten into several media skirmishes with with people, and I was having skirmishes in my personal life. So I just got to the point where I didn't want to have no trouble. So I was trying to do what appeared to be edgy, but wasn't edgy. <laughs> Jesus. But then that night came. That night. That that night. That night of thunderbolt that you need, and that usually comes when you're just the wrong side of tired. Or you have a little bit of cold. Or you don't like the man that's supposed to be paying you. (laughs) Whatever. And it's just... And something in you goes, Just say what you fucking think. Fuck the consequences. And you do it and it works and you go, Oh yeah, I used to do this all the time. (laughs) 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 Okay, man, I think I'm going to start doing this again. And I think... I think the broken leg was the icing on the cake. I had come out of it like maybe 10 months earlier, maybe eight months earlier. But then the broken leg just gave you a chance to sit back and go, you know what? All of my pain has been 
existential, emotional, what my mother would call invisible and faggy. <laughs> Broken leg, that's, that's tangible, you can feel that. If I get a chance to run again, I'm going to run hard. If I get a chance to talk to some people again, I'm going to talk hard. You know? And it was like, this show I'm doing this year, this tour I just did, it was, for me, an apology to my audience for the previous tour. It's like, I'm sorry I was such a shit the before. And it's like, so let me give myself to it the best I can and see if I can find that groove that we all love. Would it be... Is there a way... I mean, have you considered saying that to your audience? Do you say that in your material? Because when you made the, the allusion to Pryor earlier on, he came out, everyone knew what had happened... People are aware, I guess, on some level that you were involved in, like you say, media skirmishes, but we don't necessarily, you know, it's yeah, not like this, these issues you've been going through are public knowledge. So is there, I just wonder, would that be easier to deal with an audience if they knew and you could walk on and go, well, shit, you know, this is where I'm at? The great Tony Woods taught me. He said, he asked me, and we were in Utrecht, Holland. I know Utrecht. Yeah, yeah. He said to me, he was teaching me too. It was like very much like he was my Mr. Miyagi. He said, what's the first and most important rule to stand up? And I said, be funny. He said, no, that's number two. He said, the first important rule of comedy is be interesting. If you be interesting for long enough, you can go ages without a punchline. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> I was interested in knowing, I mean, that's a really good point. And I, I want to, I'm, that's the second time you've mentioned rules. You mentioned John Cordello and the golden rules that he kind of in, yeah. instilled in you that you worked with him with. Um, so we're maybe- oh, I was talking about comedy and that why don't I say those things that I just said to you? Why don't I say those things on stage? Well, John Cordello's rules were, remember, first and foremost, you are there to be laughed at. Check your fucking ego at the door. Check your need to have a, 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 a psychiatric session at the door. If it's funny, yes, but you are there to be laughed at. And when I was in my dark phase and I was scared and everything, I was not prepared to be laughed at. I I was still too close to my own problems. Sometimes you need distance before you can laugh at them. And talking to you now about those things, I've been thinking, I I know I'm going to do something with it, but I don't know if it's stand-up. I don't know if it's going to be in a book or a film. I don't know, but it's like, I mean, there's, there's something inherently funny about a man who is a lifetime member of the whole club having to quit cold turkey <laughs> and, and becoming less funny. <laughs> just, just, and, and there's, but no, I, I don't quite know what to do with that yet. In fact, you know, I'm still, I'm, 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 I'm pleased that I'm able to even talk to you about it because if we did this interview a year ago, I wouldn't have even alluded to it. <laughs> so I must be getting some traction with it. <laughs> Let's talk about Tony Woods, who's act. I have to say, I don't know his act. I think I met him once in one of the, uh, the snow bombing festivals, one of the uh, altitude altitude festival. Um, what what were the circumstances where you came to work with him, or that mentor relationship evolved? I didn't think much of him when I first saw him. He's highly regarded. I mean, like he's loving both sides of the pond, and. He is considered the quintessential international comedian, uh, the quintessential international comedian who's quote unquote never made it, you know, and 
a lot of people have borrowed from Tony. They say Dave Chappelle borrowed a whole persona from Tony. <laughs> um, well, Tony said that. <laughs> well, but actually, though, yeah, he right. <laughs> I mean, Chappelle don't use it as much no more, but Chappelle's early days when he was coming up, that's sort of like just, yeah, what's up? Just kind of sleepy. That's Tony Woods. <laughs> I was working with Tony. This is what happened. I had worked with him previously. And this is back when this is when I was coming up, and I was grinding, and I was I was quite, I was a commit a comedy fundamentalist, I was and I was I was very judgmental and harsh on other people. I ain't say nothing to him, but I thought he, I thought a black man coming out of New York and the D.C. area, which he was, supposed to say something, and he didn't say nothing. He just made people laugh, old stupid jokes. So this is like my. Third year in comedy. This is uh, this is to dig my ego. He and Tony Woods now were booked to do um, this show. I was supposed to go on second, and he was closing. Now I was already closing gigs by my second year, and quite frankly, my estimation of myself was uh, I was better than Tony. But they had him closing, so I was a bit, I was a bit, I was a bit huffy about that. So I was gonna go and go on stage. And I was going to do my Jerry Lee Lewis and like, follow that, nigger. I was going to do that. <laughs> I, went, I went and I did I did my best stuff in the second slot. Just slamming, slamming. When I came on stage, all they gave me a standing ovation. And I was like, I think we can put this as another W. Another <laughs> W in the column. Tony was late. He had missed his flight, which he always does. Or he did back then. And he had just been driven in from Rotterdam. And he goes on stage and he's just all like flopping around and just slow talking. And he keeps doing this one joke over and over. And it's like, and he's just making himself laugh. What's the joke? He's like, Sandy, the midget pony who was supposed to sing tonight, it will not be here. Um, Unfortunately, he's unable to because he's a little horse. And he just kept saying this over and over and giggling to himself. And then the audience started going with it. And when he came off stage, they gave him a standing ovation. And I was like, no, you fools. He's played you. He didn't even do one real joke. You fools. He goes back on stage and he does like 10 extra minutes. And the whole time he's doing this extra 10 minutes, they are standing. They they stay standing. And they have they take their cigarette lighters and they hold them up in the air like it's a fucking concert. And it's just I hated everybody in that room. I hated them. I hated them. So I went and I got back in the van that was driving us back to the hotel. And I was sitting there with my arms crossed. I was just I was mad. And Tony came and sat next to me. And he's like, oh. And then I just I suddenly just looked at him like, how did you do that? That, and he said, do what? He says, the shit you just did. That bullshit you just got away with. How the fuck you made them love you for that bullshit right there? And he said, oh, yeah, you young buck. He says, you don't know about rope doping And I said, rope doping He said, yeah, that's what Ali did when he fought Foreman. He said, when Ali fought Foreman, he said, remember, Ali came out of retirement. George Foreman was the Mike Tyson of his day. Ali was 32, and they asked Ali in the press, they was like, Ali, how you expect to fight George Foreman? And Ali said, well, two things. 
He said, first of all, Big George, there's some things that he ain't never heard the referee say. Things like round five, round six. He ain't never heard the man say that. <laughs> and he said, and also, he said, we're going to rope a dope. And the media went rope a dope. So all doing like all these sparring sessions, all he was doing body work, endurance work. And when he'd be with his sparring partners, he practiced putting his fists up like this, like up against his face and just up against the ropes. When the fight came, Big George came out, boom, boom. Ollie would grab him, go up against the rope. Second round, Big George come out, boom, boom. Ollie would grab him, a referee would separate him, Ollie would be laying up against the rope. Somewhere around about the fourth, third, or fourth round, Big George was like, ooh, ooh. And that's when Ollie would grab him and let him go. And then Ollie would go, take that with you. And then somewhere around the field, Ali just started sticking and moving. This is what Tony's telling me. And then he says, you ain't going to be able to have your best energy every time you go out. Sometimes you're going to have the flu. Sometimes you're going to just don't be them broke up with your woman. Sometimes the man ain't paying you right. Sometimes you just, you don't like the motherfucker, but you still have to entertain these people. He says, I have the flu and I'm exhausted. And I had to entertain these people the best with what I had. You, it is your duty to make them laugh. But it was the next night that he changed my life. That's when he was in Utrecht. There was a British comic on named Simon Fox. He was on first. They handed him his ass back. I went on second and I got away with it, but you wouldn't want to make a living off the difference. Tony goes on stage and he does 50 of the most beautiful minutes I've ever seen. Standing ovation. Encore. And when he came and sat next to me, I was sitting at the little table where the comedians are. And he came and sat next to me. And he, he was laughing. And he slapped me on the leg. And he said, it ain't about the alcohol. It ain't about the weed. It ain't about no mushrooms. It ain't about no cocaine. It is about putting the children to bed and taking them home. And he said, and I was trying to speak. And I, you know, I was literally trying to speak and no words were coming out. And he said, don't try to speak. He said, I know exactly what you're going through. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that look you got on your face right now. He said, about 10 years ago, uh, he said, another comedian put that look on my face. And about 10 years before that, another comedian put that look on his face. And I wasn't going to work that hard tonight, but I did that because I knew you thought you was betting me. And you're not. Now go get a notebook and a pen and let me tell you what you're doing wrong. And we sat there right in that club with all these girls coming around. Can we have an autograph? And like, I, I, I was an au pair in North Carolina. And we, he was like, bitches, leave us alone. He said, the first rule of comedy would be interesting. <laughs> Then the second rule, and he just laid out the rules to me. And he said, and I'm telling you this, he says, because you got the gift. And he said, before long, you're going to start putting that look on people's face. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, that, what I love most, I think, about that story is the idea of the lineage of comedy. I sometimes mm. feel like comedy is a thing in itself it's like a living breathing thing that we, that we all come back to I was having a conversation with someone last night and I described this this new wave of kind of absurdism that's happening at the moment <laughs> loads of comics have kind of been inspired by Dr. Brown Sam Simmons Trivi Wakenshaw there's, there's like it's, there's another there's a new genre of absurdism and I said to, uh, I was chatting to Bob Slayer and I talked about how a particular act I'd seen at, at this festival I, he, I started off thinking oh this is just another guy doing this and then I felt like actually by the midway through the show I was like no he's giving as much back to the pot as he's taking out mm -hmm. and I think that the longevity of that the idea that comics will put that look on each other's faces 
every 10 years something like that <laughs> that makes me feel I think that makes us all feel like it is a calling it is a thing it's a thing in its own right and I, I think that that is something I think of when I think of Reginald D. Hunter I think of that like you seem to be someone who breathes it do you know what I mean mm. that you eat and sleep and breathe it not just oh, because yeah. you're obsessive about it but just because it is something else it's something tangible in the world mm. for you well Ali you know the comedian that uh, that put that, that look on Tony's face it, it was Bernie Mac really and Tony told me he said I was opening for Bernie Mac in Miami and we was just doing club there and he said I had a real bad fever and he said I was on first and I went on stage and as soon as I came off stage I passed out turns out I had pneumonia and he said I woke up about 18 hours later in the hospital and Bernie Mac was sitting right there and I said what happened he said you got pneumonia kid and I said oh man I said what are you doing here he said cause you here and you ain't got nobody down here so I'm here and I said I didn't know you even liked me he says yeah I like you and he said, you've been putting that look on people's face. And he said, he said, you got all the tools. You're just missing one thing. And I said, what's that? One woman. One woman who loves you but ain't over-impressed with your bullshit. One woman who knows how your soul works and knows how to keep you grounded. A woman who understands that keeping you grounded doesn't mean assaulting your spirit. One woman. And when Tony told me that, I said, so did you manage that? Do you have the one woman? And he said, I got it down to five. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you um, before, uh, before I saw your show the other night, which was fantastic. I saw you, the, I think the last time I'd seen you live before that was in New Zealand. And in terms of the timeline... That must have been dark, Reg. Yeah, that, that was. I was. That was. Uh, I was rope doping like a motherfucker. I was. Oh man. I've, I I made a note after that gig. I, there were two things that struck me about that gig. One was that you were getting more applause breaks than laughs, and I thought this audience have bought Reg. They like Reg. They get it. But I mean, I didn't know at the time you were in, through that period of your life, you know, and, and all those stuff had gone on, but. It was really interesting to see an audience go with someone. I guess now looking at it now, someone roper doping. They were going with it, but I was I was thinking this this isn't the Reg I remember. Yeah, and that's one reason why I'm eager to go back. I, I, I'm, I'm eager to go back to Europe and tour because I was in in that dark phase when I went there too. It feels like a bit sci-fi. It's like I want to go back in time and set things right. We have to go back in time, and I'm, I'm taking my Asian with me. Because he he understands the space time continuum, <laughs> but yeah, it's like and but I'm proud of myself about that in that I knew that I was I was trying to heal myself on the fly. How do I keep my career going and flowing? How do I maintain my bookability while while healing myself on the quiet and. I think they'll still have me back. Um, if they give me another crack at them, I'm going to show them something there. One of the, the other, I said there were two things. The other thing that struck me about that set was a bit of material that I found really problematic. 
Can I talk to you about this? Can I? Yeah. <laughs> now we know that we're dealing with Dark Reg. Do you know which bit I'm talking Hell about? Hell no. <laughs> I, I, I thought all of that shit was fucked up, to be honest. Okay, okay. Well, I, I kind of, that makes me glad to hear it because at the time I remember there was, it was a bit of material about women and it was a material, I think the, the end of the bit was, and I don't want to, let's think back. I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I, it was... I never talk about women. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe we should talk about the wider scope first. No, tell me the joke. Tell me the joke. About it, was, it was a bit where I think the resolution was uh, that uh, if a woman has been sexually assaulted and doesn't mention it and then brings it up later, having not originally claimed that it happened, then she then you've got to question her motives. It's something to do with like, you, was, you, was, you were implying that someone would do that strategically. If someone is raped and, and doesn't make a thing of it at the time and then brings it up later. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. My memory of that joke is simply the message is tell the police. <laughs> because if you don't tell the police, then... <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happens. The, 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 the perpetrator goes and does it again, and and what, what, but I don't recollect saying that. Um, what you saying that the joke was about? That sounded like something I would have thought or felt, but it doesn't feel to me like something I would have said. But you're very very. Prescient dude. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching. I was watching it with uh, Michelle Acor, a Kiwi comedian and uh, uh, a writer, and uh, really interesting person. Who we later, I had her on this podcast, and we talked about it at the time. That's why it sticks in my mind because we were both really surprised by certainly what we interpreted from that material. We were both we were looking at each other during the gig. We sat near each other, and we were going, "Fuck!" And I think. I, like I said, so you I'm pleased to hear this. So, so you're saying the basis of what you, what, you, what you both took out of it was I was saying that if a woman doesn't report it at the time, but does later, then you have to question whether or not it actually happened. Uh, I, think, I think what we interpreted was that if a woman doesn't report it at the time, but does later, then you have to question her motives for revealing it later. It was you implied it was somehow strategic. And mm. we were looking at each other open mouthed going, fuck, that mm. seems... Unkind at absolute best. It's the very last part that doesn't sound quite like me, that if she's reporting it later, then it must be strategic. That doesn't sound like me there, but the rest of it sounds like me. Sure. I mean, it's definitely the territory, right? You, oh, yeah, you yeah, yeah. The, territory, the territory is uncomfortable truths. Yeah. The territory is finding out what's really going on. Yeah. You know, talking about things that worry people and going no well guys we've got to talk about this and I think at the time it just seemed it it seemed difficult I remember thinking fuck Reg where's this going there was a phase when I in my angry dark phase when uh, I was getting groans from women in the audience about it and I was like and, and, and the groans I was getting was like um, they were saying that they didn't want to see me that way it was like I didn't want to see you as someone who feel that way or like because I set myself up in the joke is like ah the, how, how should I say this without giving away the punchline of the joke um, my reaction to the women's reactions in the show was the point of the joke is to tell the fucking police that's the point point. <laughs> 
Oh, oh man, this is. <laughs> I wonder how many other people thought that. <laughs> I realise I'm putting you on the spot years up, like a couple of years after the event, and that's not a. I don't know. It's not a fair thing to do. I'm not trying to pax with you. Here, well, do you know what I mean? Well, I don't feel I'm bad just... about that. This ain't exactly a Senate subcommittee or nothing like that. I mean, <laughs> do, you, do you remember the reaction that you had at the Apollo gig for not this tour, but the last tour, and two women stood up and told that joke? Mm. You know, remember. Oh. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to give Cash a microphone. Let's just. <laughs> but but you remember, like two women had stood up because they misinterpreted what you were saying, and they thought that you were attacking women as a whole. As a whole, <sighs> and but and it's the kind of the reaction that you give that we often get even on Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> sure. That people don't. People kind of misunderstand the, the intent. I have a lot. I have an issue. I have a an ongoing thing in my career, um, particularly on stage, where if I'm saying something about gender roles or women, and women feel it's unflattering, they tend to personalize it as if I'm talking to them about them, <laughs> and and so they can react as if they often react as if I poked them with a hot poker or something like that and it's like I didn't I'm just talking about you <laughs> but then my mama used to say a hurt dog holler <laughs> do you think do you think there's a chance that they're reacting because they they consider you are talking about like it's not that they're taking it personally so much as they're taking it on behalf of women and going what's the you difference you shouldn't say that about women what's the fucking difference <laughs> they're taking it on behalf of all women because all of it presumes that as a man I don't have a right to comment on women's stuff and that's bullshit <laughs> I mean I mean as much as they feel free to comment about the state of manhood <laughs> and since we both rely on each other to, there's an interdependency between the genders then yes we have the right to comment on each other and I feel like as long as I'm articulate and open to changing my mind and, and, and presenting it in that way then yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I, I've seen black people be like that whenever white people comment about black issues, and it's bullshit. It's, it is no different. It's like you couldn't possibly know what it's like. To, you couldn't possibly understand racism because you're white. Fuck off. Speak to English people who try to live in Scotland. See if they don't understand racism. And see, the, for me, I remember that the, the point of, of doing a lot of those jokes is that the protectionism that a lot of people have in communities, whether it's gender or race or religious. And it's like, it's like sometimes the people, the person that has the answer for your community does not come from your community. <laughs> I actually think that civil rights leaders in America, I think since Martin Luther King, they've all sucked. We would have come out better if we were represented by some old Scottish woman. I really do. So, yeah. But anyway, stuff like that, man, I try to shy away from. <laughs> well, well, this is it. So, so that it seems to me that's kind of, that was part of the Dark Reg era, was it? That whereby you, I mean, did you find when you were doing material that you, were, that you now think of as that I wasn't, that's not what I wanted to say or the performance wasn't there or the material wasn't what I want it to be now? The problem, the problem I found with living in Europe and traveling abroad and being being a life where so many non-ethnics populate my world is that I have to bite my tongue all the time. There's a subtlety that's appreciated over here, an indirectness that's appreciated over here. And when you're in a dark space and you're dealing with your issues, you're trying to find clever ways 
non-confrontational ways to talk out your issues. And it's like, but y'all don't like to discuss nothing openly, <laughs> nothing, nothing that's murky. <laughs> and and I, and I remember at the time I was feeling like, well, this is the reason why things don't get changed. Because you look at America's racial problems now. We fought the Civil War, but nothing was resolved. Nothing was changed. We just stopped fighting for a long time. But that's why those racist white people, they still mad because nothing was resolved. A lot of those places and people in Texas, Mississippi, they still want us to see. <laughs> it hasn't changed. And it was like, so I, I remember in my dark phase, I was like, why aren't things fucking changing? And I was mad about that, too. And I was also sexually angry, too, because I just I wasn't fucking. <laughs> and I think a lot of. But I, out of all the things a person can do with their sexual anger, I told a few jokes that made people think, at least I didn't go around punching women and raping nobody or starting bar fights with niggas. <laughs> I didn't start shooting a pair of one or nothing. I mean, I have a feeling that when I get through all of this totally and I look back, I have a feeling I'm going to be, I'm going to be slightly proud of how I carried it. One of my favorite uh, stories or, or man stories about carrying it is John F. Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was fucking terrified, <laughs> but he had to carry it. There's a famous story that the Friday before they announced about the missiles being in Cuba, Kennedy was supposed to speak at New York University. And his press secretary heard that the speech had been canceled because Kennedy had a cold. And Schlesinger said, I had just had breakfast with him. He was fine. I knew something was up. And he said, we got in the, in the limousine. It was just him and I in the back. And he had an occasional cigarette every now and again, but he was chain smoking now. And I said, sir, is there something wrong? And as he was stepping out of the cigarette, he says, you're goddamn right there is. And this time you better grab your balls. He was scared. But how do you carry it? How do you make the thing continue even though you're scared with us? That's what the dark period was. I was scared all the time. Hate. And when people are scared for long enough, it tends to make them become hateful. Fear is the beginning of hate. And racist white people in America, that's fear. They're afraid of becoming extinct. They're afraid of not being, of being the low man on the totem pole. Once we move into our flat, because we have things in storage now, we'll pull up the tapes and we'll see. Because we have the tapes from those exact shows. <laughs> and I, I, I know you ain't full of shit. It's just, I just, yeah. I just, the thing is more to do is like when you hear, when you hear a trigger word, almost, because it's happened, it's happened this Edinburgh in one instance. Trigger words. Yeah, sometimes. And that's another thing about you and your friend Acorn. Y'all might have been triggered by just some of the words I was using because it's, we live in a climate now where there's, um, well, it's just it's real easy to to offend if you're not Jewish and you're talking about Jewish people. It's real easy to get people back up. If you if you if you're not black and you're talking about black people, it's easy to get people back up. If you're not a woman and you're talking about women's issues boldly, it's real easy to get people's back up. So I advise you and Acorn to go back and look at the tapes of yourselves a few years ago and see where you was at. <laughs> Matt, I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm not disagreeing with that. The, we all need to look at where we was at. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, I mean, about two, three weeks back, and this is actually happened on tour at all, we've had one walkout 
And, and this is like, I mean, to me, really, it, it, was, it was the most innocuous thing because there's plenty of other things that they can walk out. But this woman walked out 10 minutes into the show. Yeah. And I was doing this riff about, you know, that riff I do about um, the word retarded. Yeah. That's what sent out. And she took it as if I was saying that um, I was putting down retarded people or people with Down syndrome or something like that. And actually, I was talking about just the, the use of the word. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, well, <laughs> it's a good thing she left because if that, if that, if that upset her, the, the rest of the show, I mean. Do you feel it's harder now that now that everyone is, you know, because everyone's online, everyone's got a forum, everyone's got an outlet, the, the, the speed at which people are outraged by things seems to have increased. Do you feel it's, do you feel like the territory has changed during your life as a comedian as to what is sayable and what's oh, definitely. supposedly unsayable? Definitely, definitely, definitely. Uh, the, 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 com- the comedial political climate it's changed. Um, and are there any advantages to it having changed? Or do you see all of those changes? I mean, do you see those changes as negative, positive, skewed in one particular direction? My mom told me, she said, you don't have to identify something as good or bad as long as you know that it is so. <laughs> this, the change is so. So I don't, I don't think about it in good or bad terms. It's frustrating sometimes. But... But see, comedy needs that. Comedy, ne- comedy is nothing more than a reaction to something. And if we don't have something to react to, then it's just you, 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 you're trying to create something in a vacuum. Comedy needs criticism. It needs politics. It needs bad relationships. It needs people who get upset easily. It needs to react to something. And quite frankly, I feel like I'm about 85% back to where I need to be. But the reason I know I ain't 15% is because I don't have near as many white people getting upset and walking out as I should do. Because y'all are a bit oversensitive right now anyway. But don't worry. But I'm going to straighten that out between now and Ireland. <laughs> when, when's Ireland? When are you in Ireland? Uh, October? Yeah. Yeah, October. So I get to go and marinate, marinate a little bit with this leg. And then listen to the tapes of this month, listen to the mistakes. It was like that woman marching out over the word retard or retarded. That was a good sign. <laughs> it's a good sign that I'm starting to get that back. It's like when you make white people storm out over stupid shit, you're doing it's it's yeah, that's that's for me anyway. <laughs> and so, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. To wrap up then, what do you still want from comedy that you don't have? Anal sex. No, I'm sorry. Palace. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, palace. Palace? <laughs> <laughs> um, I certainly would like some money. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the money has not mattered to me up until now. And, and I like that about myself. I like the fact that I feel like before my mama got sick, my mama and my sister got sick at the same time. Um, mama had a stroke and my sister had breast cancer. And that's when I started getting serious about the money because we had the kind of insurance that poor niggas have in Georgia. And so, but before that, I was all about apprenticing. I was content to just learn my craft because I knew that in old England, 
that motherfucker could apprentice for 20 years before he set a shingle out. And I think that's, I think that we suffer from not doing that anymore. And. I mean, you've got one year left of your apprenticeship in comedy. Well, I don't know if I got that, but I, th- I, I think I'm willing my way to my raconteurship. <laughs> and, um, what else do I want from comedy? Um, I think what I've always wanted from the comedy, live comedy, is you always in search of that flawless show. In baseball, they call it a no-hitter, a perfect game. Um, come close a few times. Enough enough for it to be like that first hit of heroin where you're always chasing it the rest of your life. It's like... And whatever you saw in New Zealand, it's all grist for the mill because I think I'm going to reach it one day. And I just think... I think ultimately what I want from comedy is that when it's over, when I'm done with it, whatever other phase of life I go on to, I want to be able to sleep peacefully at night thinking I did all I could with it. I couldn't have done no more or better than what I did with it. I don't want, it'll, it'll, it would nag me to my grave if I felt like there was a level that was reachable that I didn't, or there was something that was in my grasp to say, but I, I just pussied out of it. That 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 actually scares me. It's just, I remember the first time I did TV stand up, and I didn't know what to do. I was in a quandary between should I do like my A list stuff, or should I do my B and C stuff. And I was home in Georgia, and I was talking to my dad about it. My dad, he don't know shit about comedy. He don't know that. And he said. It was up to me, boy. He said, throw your first best stuff. He said, if you throw your first best stuff and they beat you, you can live with that. But if you throw your second or third best stuff and they beat you, that's going to bother you to your old man, son. (laughs) So last question then. We talked a lot about the rules, the principles, the mentorship, or that mentorship, inverted commas, from Tony, from John Gordillo. What would you want to pass on what would your rules be to the next person, the 10 years down the line? Before person? I answer that, I would like to say that um, during the dark period, um, I was in the process of mentoring a couple of comedians. And I got so immersed in my darkness that I did not leave them in good stead. I will hope to go back and correct that. I um, One of my lofty dreams is I would like to direct an Edinburgh show. I'd like to direct a comedian. Uh, I believe I have something to offer. Um, are you open to approaches because if you say that on this show you're going to get a thousand emails tomorrow <laughs> yeah as long as they're cool with me saying no I mean it's like the, the, like my dreamy dream this is my dreamy dream this is just a dreamy dream now my dreamy dream is to have enough money to like build like a dormitory like you know like ten rooms and just house ten comedians and just for like three months just they come and they be they come and they be we talk about comedy we watch stuff we go to see comedy we do we work on approaches and stuff like that and it's just and it's not that I believe I have all the answers but I believe I have a way of getting to the answers and and just yeah I whenever he 
Whenever he has something to say, he starts breathing. It's <laughs> like a serial killer or something. I, just, I thought you were talking about his dormitory thing. If you could still keep a wheelchair, it would be like a weird version of X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> no, Alex, the joke is within you. <laughs> the joke has always been within you. <laughs> So that was Reg. Thank you so much to Reg for coming on the show. Thank you to Cash for his contributions as well. And thank you, Jen Palmer-Violet, who helped me set up that interview. Um, And that's that. I enjoyed it enormously. It was... I found that one pretty electrifying. It's weird, isn't it? Because this is... The show isn't me, so I don't need to be humble about it. But at the same time, I don't want to show off about, (laughs) you know, the thing itself. I really enjoyed that, and I really feel like I got a lot closer to who Reg is. Uh, I hope you did too. Give me your feedback on that show. Let me know if you think we went far enough. I'm sort of, like I said, I'm not out to ambush anybody. I did have some issues with some of the stuff he said on stage in previous years. He's a very controversial comic and benefits from that enormously and also has been involved in other controversies that we didn't even get into. But I wanted to talk specifically about the things I'd heard him say. At the same time, it's not, you know what I mean? I'm not doing like a a documentary on anyone i'm not trying to catch anyone out but i think we started to get into i think reggie's resistance to some of that last line of questioning was quite interesting and maybe there's more of a conversation to be had maybe we can talk further to reggie about that so very very pleased that he came on the show and very pleased that uh, he talked so openly um and that's that for now uh you know where the t-shirts and the tour stuff is all i mean i keep saying all of the the endings of the the websites but you can basically go to comedianscomedian.com and work from there it's all fairly self-explanatory um thank you for listening i hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as i enjoyed recording it and if you'd care to stick around i will uh, talk you through a bit of a post amble in just a moment bye for now <laughs> so how was that everyone I was pretty nervous going into that interview. And this is weird because obviously I'm, I'm recording this little postamble several months after recording it. And due to the vagaries of the production process, I haven't listened back to all of it right now. I'm going on memory. Um, I suppose it's a good time to be having these sorts of conversations. Let's take this away from Reg for the moment. Let's talk about gender. Let's talk about women and let's talk about me too which uh, unless you're completely alienated from social media you will have noticed uh, trending over the last week or so in the wake of harvey weinstein weinstein's uh, the allegations made about harvey weinstein um to fill you in a lot of women have been facebooking and tweeting with the hashtag but i'm only assuming they've been tweeting let's stick to the facts Facebooking with the hashtag MeToo to talk about their own experiences of being sexually harassed or sexually assaulted. And I, like a lot of men, like a lot of people, I've sort of I'm going to I'm going to make an assumption here. I'm going to assume that women knew how much this was happening. I'm equally going to assume that men were aware it went on, but probably like me have been utterly sickened and staggered and hurt to see just how prevalent to see and i'm not making an exaggeration here almost every woman on my timeline uh 
talking about their experiences whether it's just me too and then leaving it or whether it's going into detail or whether it's being incredibly creative and poetic and visceral and candid and and revelatory about about their own experiences and i am hesitant to say anything about it and i'm hesitant not to say anything about it because I was involved I no I wasn't involved in an in an argument uh, a few years ago between two comedian friends of mine one of them white one of them non-white If you're friends with us you know who these people were um and I didn't say anything because the white person's the white comedian's argument that racism wasn't a thing or didn't exist um seemed to me so preposterous and I didn't want to insult or embarrass my non-white friend by sticking my oar in when I thought he was doing a completely capable job of tearing apart this other guy's argument. I didn't say anything. I felt like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to patronize my non-white friend by, oh, I'll help. I'll come to your rescue. And, um, and so I didn't say anything. I sort of sat there and watched this thing happen as someone very masterfully tore someone else tore a strip of someone else and i understand that these guys are both now friends again and it's all resolved afterwards it was communicated to me that my non-white friend had felt a bit fucking aggrieved that other people hadn't chimed in and stood up for him and i don't want to make that mistake again so for all that I worry about accusations of being a white knight, or which is some awful MRA terminology, or accusations of wanting to virtue signal, which is another fucking bullshit piece of terminology, as much as I'm concerned about people accusing me of wanting to somehow benefit myself, or worse, I'm also concerned about being told, look, this isn't a time for you to speak. I, I get that as well. But at the same time, I think I have a burgeoning awareness that if you don't at some point say, hey, hey everyone, there's a fucking, there's a lot of, there's a huge, huge problem with sexual harassment right now, then the danger is, which clearly there is, if you, if I as a man don't say anything, then people who are offenders and abusers don't get, I'm not, I'm not contributing to any kind of wave against them, even if it's just because I consider it, well, obviously, obviously sexual harassment is wrong. Obviously there's a fuckload of misogyny in, in the world. Obviously I am a feminist. I think any right thinking person is a feminist. Obviously there are, you know, I mean, so much of this stuff seems really obvious to me. I don't want to get involved in an argument that sucks my time away. I don't know how much online arguments change, th change things, but I don't want to simply take for granted my non-involvement in the fucking dialogue anymore because it's so upsetting hearing at first hand over and over again just how much this goes on and and having this kind of white male experience of sort of going oh shit i mean i i'd just been operating on the basis that the world was tough for everyone and you've got to you just got to look after yourself and then and then looking around and going oh fuck me even i who was pretty aware of how privileged i was still wasn't aware of how privileged i was and so it's painful and I think there is, I got the first whispers of maybe there's a hashtag for men to go, I believe you, which I approve of as a thing. But again, to me, that seems to take the argument away and go, well, let's make it all about me. I was privy to a big argument on someone's Facebook thread, which I didn't actually in 
engage with again and I feel like a dick for not engaging with it but for ranting elsewhere where where some men literally got onto a thread that a woman had put on her Facebook where other women were expressing solidarity with one another and two men turned up and very quickly went through a cycle of yeah but what are we supposed to do about it hey what do you mean I'm supposed to work it out myself hey why are you being such a dick to me god you're all bitches it was it was honestly as simple as that and I just felt so sick and ashamed of what twats men can be and how and and once or twice, you, I came across a, 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 I mean, endless, endless rivers of patience ex- exhibited by women on this thread, and um, and one or two men who were just calmly, quietly saying, "I don't think this is the place to talk about that, mate," and just trying to help in a way that didn't fucking go. Don't worry, good chicks, I've got this. You know, in that kind of crashing, boorish way that mm, all men, all men can do without realizing we're doing it. When you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like a threat. I've minced that quote, but it it feels like oppression. And that's the problem. I think to open our eyes as men and go, Jesus Christ, we're all part of this problem to some extent, whether it's simply because we've got a mate who's a bit of a lad and we don't pick him up as often as we should on some of the things he says. We're all involved. We're all complicit. And I just want to fucking say that i just want to say that out loud because to me that's obvious but if you don't say it if you don't just put up a hand and go oh by the way we have to fucking take responsibility for this even if other people or other men or whoever want to go oh christ here we go again i mean jesus if you're not enjoying this bit turn it off but i am making myself vulnerable by saying this and and this is in a, in a minuscule way but this is more to do with my personal psychology I have always dressed in order to not present a target for ridicule do you know what I mean due to aspects of my schooling which I occasionally allude to in the podcast and don't go into detail on I basically am terrified of people picking on me I'm terrified of being a target I'm terrified of being a target for physical abuse or or ridicule or psychological abuse all of those things and so I keep my head down and I would just like to stop keeping my head down so there you go yeah I'm leaving a big pregnant pause there as if I'm basically just yeah there we go so bring up the stirring music now it's pathetic isn't it it's, it's just it, of course I haven't been through anything like this horrific abuse that, that all of these women are talking about in their droves and, and with such creativity and patience and and resignment and exhaustion so if you're a man can you just do me a favor and next time you get involved in a woman's facebook thread about something they're sharing can you just say something brief and supportive and then shut up and any problems you've got with the idea of hey but there's violence sexual violence against men as well great start your own thread about that and talk about that don't just bring it up when you're trying to derail a conversation that is actually about sexual violence towards women because that is also part of the problem alright lecture over that'll do me I've got other stuff to do Um, yeah there we go bye everyone When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.